Well, good morning again. Great to see you guys. Uh, today is going to be a beautiful Sunday. Now I can see your faces. Thank you very much. Um, as Wayne said, this is a sensitive topic, um, and so uh, we're going to handle it uh, very carefully. Uh, but today, as we uh, jump in, I want to ask you uh, to jump into this talk with three things in mind, uh, three very important things in mind. One uh, is an open mind. I just ask that you'd have an open mind for this. This topic that we're about to enter into certainly divides. Uh, and if you walked into this room and don't practice the sexual ethic of Christ, uh, then I would just ask that you consider what he puts forth. Just consider it. Uh, secondly, I'd ask that you'd operate for the next 30 minutes uh, with what Wayne was talking about here just a second ago, with grace for yourself and grace for others. Uh, in Christian culture, uh, especially, we can look at sex sexual sin and say that it's like the ultimate sin. It's the ultimate wrongdoing. Uh, and we must remember, we must begin, that's the reason why we began this way, we must remember that Christ died for all sin and that there's freedom and forgiveness for us at the cross. But there's also freedom. I mean, it's not just forgiveness, there's freedom, which leads to the last thing, uh, which I'd ask you to consider, and that is that that Jesus really wants to set you free this morning. Like he actually wants to give you freedom in this lifetime, here and now. Uh, and so he brought you here on June 4th, 2023, wherever you are, whatever you're struggling with, he brought you here so that you wouldn't just hear about freedom and leave this place, but that you'd hear about freedom and experience freedom. So let's live in that. I'm gonna pray for us and then I'm gonna ask you to pray for me as we jump into this uh, text. And then we'll begin. Father, thank you for giving us your word that pierces through bone and marrow, that pierces through the culture of death and theft that we live in and shows us the truth that lifts up mightily the truths of sex and sexuality, allows us to see that this is a beautiful gift. Lord, whatever shame or condemnation is in the room, I pray uh, through the power of the Spirit of God, you uh, burn that out today. Right now, would you take the cotton balls out of ears so that the truth may be heard, that there is restoration, <laughs> forgiveness, and redemption found in the blood of your Son. We pray all these things in His name. Amen. All right, in 24 years of schooling, I have one class that stands out as my favorite among every class I took. 24 years. My favorite class was AP Art History. And I know that's surprising for some of you, but I loved it. I loved AP Art History. I loved studying uh, the painter's biographies and learning how their character and their lives shaped their art. Well, in Art History class uh, in high school, I came across a painting that struck me. And because of how my life played out in the realm of the topic of sex, this painting burned into my memory. And it's a painting that's titled The Concert by Johann Vermeer. It was painted in 1664. And if you really look at the painting on the, in the, back, on the back wall there, you can see something fascinating. Uh, to the left on the, uh, on the kind of cover of the piano and then on the, on the painting to your left, you see this beautiful garden. You see a garden that's uh, a gorgeous pastoral landscape. And it's uh, a beautiful walled garden, actually. But lurking in the shadows to your right is another painting. And that painting is called the Procurus. 
It's a painting uh, which is a picture of a man purchasing sex from a woman in a brothel. And in this fascinating juxtaposition, the beauty of something being stolen away by something else is there, right? You see, your eyes kind of revert to that spot to the right there, and it steals your attention and robs you of enjoying the beauty of this priceless painting. Well, in 1990, in the darkness of night at 1.30 a.m., two men pretended to be police officers and walked into the museum where the concert hung. And they stole this priceless painting. Just like the explicit painting on the right steals your attention from the walled garden, this priceless work of art itself was stolen. The painting uh, today actually uh, breaks two world records. One, it's the most valuable item currently stolen in the world because of its incalculable worth. And today, the second record it breaks is it has the largest bounty ever offered by a private institution to retrieve the picture. Where's it going? There is a picture of what sex is supposed to be that's priceless in value. And whether you're aware of it or not this morning, it has been taken from you. The painter of the universe brushed sex to be in an incalculably precious part of life. And something lurking in the background of our world and the darkness of night has taken it from you. See, our culture of death and theft screams at us. This is what sex is supposed to be. Look over here. This is what it's supposed to be. And it misses entirely what it's created to be. God describes sex in Song of Solomon 4 as a garden of love. But it's a garden with walls. The, painty, the painter's amazing character, our God's amazing character, has delivered to us a sweet picture of the created order of sex. He's painted this picture for us, and we've been robbed. What do you say that we get back what's been taken from us this morning? Amen. Guys, I'm really trying. I need you to try here too, okay? <laughs> what do you say we get back what's been taken from us this morning? Amen. Okay. Matthew 5, check it out. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, this is Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount as we continue line by line here. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Okay, so pretty sharp passage today. It begins by saying this phrase over and over again that we've, you've heard uh, us say or kind of quote Jesus in this passage, that you've heard that it was said. So Jesus is taking that from somewhere, right? He's, he's referencing Exodus 20, verse 14, which is the seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments. 
And what he does is so fascinating. He marries the 10th commandment and the 7th commandment and puts them into one to show us the heart of the issue of lust. Now, any person could read this passage at first glance and be like, okay, if you think about sex or you have sex, then you're going to hell. You have sex, you're going to die. Some of you, that was your sex, sex education in seventh grade. You have sex, you're going to die. But that's a vast misunderstanding. The biblical understanding, the biblical view of the picture that he's painted of sex is actually one of the most attractive parts of Christianity. So he says, uh, verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus is pointing to the integrity of sex. So in order to move forward, we have to know what he's basing this off of. He's basing his whole argument off of something. And so in order to move forward, you and I have to understand what is the sex ethic that's in the Bible. What's he building upon? And it really is beautiful. I got to tell you, when I discovered this later in life, it's something that honestly blew me away. What the Bible explains is what sex is made for uh, and, and who it's for is spectacular. And the Bible, it describes sex as a garden, like I said. And the Old Testament it describes it as a garden, but it's a garden with walls. Song of Solomon uh, 4 is, a, is a, a love poem, right? If you've if never studied it, uh, it definitely will make you blush because the Bible's pro-sex. It's, he, he, he really puts it out there in, in Song of Solomon 4. It says, verse 12, You are my private garden, my treasure, my bride, a secluded spring, a hidden fountain. You are a garden fountain, a well of fresh water streaming down from Lebanon's mountains. So he describes this beautiful garden with water flowing within its walls and, and actually later explains that it's filled with choice fruits, exotic choice fruits, and it's exciting, it's, but it's also protected. There's walls around it. Almost everybody, almost everybody in society puts walls or boundaries around sex. Today, the most, most common thing would be age or consent. That's the walls for sex most commonly. That, that's what people would say is the boundaries for sex. Well, the, the Bible also has boundaries for sex. And it actually is laid out later by the same author in Proverbs 5, 16. It says, share your love only with your wife. Verse 16, why spill the water of your springs in the streets? Having sex with just anyone, you should reserve it for yourselves, never share it with strangers. So here we are, a picture of love with intention, a, a, a purpose-filled, boundaried gift. And as with that painting, there are boundaries around sex that God places so that we might engage its intended purpose. So what are the boundaries for God's intended picture of sex? What are his boundaries? What does God paint? Well, that could be answered with one question. And it's, it seems like an archaic word, but it's the only word I can give you that's going to describe this. And that word is covenant. Sex inside a covenant, sex inside marriage. At Sal and Sydney's wedding, I, uh, I, I spoke on this at their wedding. Some of you guys were there and I didn't think they'd be here. So I was going to talk about them and their lives because I thought they were on their honeymoon enjoying their covenant. Uh, <laughs> and, but I'm going to talk about them and what covenant is. A covenant, right, creates relationship. And it's far more intimate and all-consuming than a feelings-based relationship. 
Right? What's the phrase we hear often? Oh, we, well, we love each other. So if we love each other, then that means this. Well, a covenant is actually more consuming than a feelings-based relationship. The question is, have you covenanted together? Well, what, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by covenanted? Let me explain with a classic Keller illustration. In a consumer relationship, right, a consumer relationship, you have a vendor and you have a provider, right? Like an iPhone. You go to AT&T and say, I want an iPhone. Get the iPhone. It's a consumer relationship between a vendor and another person. Now, you'll continue that relationship with that vendor as long as you're getting a good price. But you're always looking for an upgrade, right? Because in a consumer relationship, my needs are more important than the relationship itself, right? I, I, I will not adjust my needs to the fact that I need a phone that does this. I'm taking from something and I will stay with that relationship as long as it's providing for my needs. It's a big old M-E, right? A covenant, please don't miss this, a covenant is the exact opposite. A covenant says, I'm going to adjust to you because I've made a promise. I'm going to adjust my needs to you because I've made a promise. So what does that make sex and a consumer relationship? It's marketing, right? It's marketing. Claire and I have counseled plenty of girls in our household, and one of them said it so perfectly. She said, it's like an endless tryout or audition. I'm stuck in a cycle of being in an endless audition with the person, and that, that piece, that commodity that I offer is what is going to keep him around. Outside the walls of its intended meaning, it becomes a tool to spin and keep someone around. And the Bible says very simply, sex is not a consumer good. It's a covenant good. As a consumer good, sex becomes something I need to find to feel good. And I need to find to feel love, so I go out and find it. But you're always looking for an upgrade. But in a covenant, sex becomes like a, like a sacrament, a sacrament, which is, it's an outward sign of an inward reality that I'm committed to all of you. I'm committed to all of you. It, it, my life, my finances, my future, our decisions, where we go, what we do, Every bit of me is committed to you. I'm opening, you, you open yourself up to a person in the most intimate of ways to say, I'm not just opening myself up to you physically, I'm opening up my entire being to you. When you ask someone to have sex outside of marriage, it lacks integrity because you're asking someone to do with their body what they aren't doing with their whole life. C.S. Lewis said this, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all other kinds of union, which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. I just want physical vulnerability with you. Not whole life vulnerability with you. In marriage, we make ourselves completely naked and vulnerable because that's what I'm doing with my whole life. 
all of me. Who's that, John Legend? Yeah, I just picked that up. Right? Which is why the initiation of sex with your spouse is so much more than just some physical act. Right? It's a deepening glue. When you initiate sex with your spouse, it's a deepening glue. It's a renewal ceremony is what it is. I, I am opening up to you in the most vulnerable of ways, but not just physically with my whole life. John White is a Christian psychologist who wrote a ton of books on Christian psychology. And he summed it up really well. He says, the bodily exposure that arouses and accompanies sex can be profoundly symbolic and powerfully healing if the, it's the concrete sign of what's happening with the whole relationship. So it only makes sense that the sexual relationship be kind, confined to marriage for mutual disclosure and tender acceptance is not the activity of the moment, but the fabric of a lifetime's weaving. Each time sex is physical disclosure without being complete personal disclosure and commitment, some of its life-giving and healing nature is destroyed. The paradox of this whole thing, sum it up. Restriction brings liberation. The walls is what brings liberation. It sounds so backwards, but it is true. Within this confines, it's to be enjoyed and experienced to the fullest in every way. I mean, think about your brain, right? You have dopamine and you have oxytocin. Those doctors out there, right? Dopamine is the thing that makes me feel good. That's why I want to go back to that thing over and over again, whatever it is. And if we pursue just that chemical in our brain, of course sex is going to feel good. That's dopamine being released in your brain. That's the feel good. Oxytocin is the bonding chemical of your brain that, that literally gets released when you feel closest to somebody and you're cheapening the oxytocin in your brain if you know in the back of your head this person could leave at any moment. You're getting both sides of the chemical that you are made that the painter brushed in your brain. This week, literally this week was crazy. I don't know how this happened, but this week I had uh, three conversations with people who don't practice the sexual ethic of Christ. And it was great. It was a great conversation. I didn't sit there and wag my finger at him and be like, you know, put this purity ring on. You know, I was like, I was just like, hey, I had a great conversation. It wasn't co condemning or anything. And we made sure that that was the case. We just talked about it. I had a conversation about it. And, two, and all three of them said, I just don't think if it matters if you're married or not. I don't think it matters. And, and two of them made two points. One of them said, it just sounds like God doesn't want you to enjoy sex. And the second point they said was kind of funny. It was more of a personal attack, but it was fine. Was, uh, do you actually believe the Bible literally? And I was like, okay, uh, thank you. Uh, look, marital sex is the best sex. Because you not only have physical vulnerability with somebody, but you have whole life vulnerability happening at the exact same time. You know the Bible isn't prude. Like I gave you just a small sliver of what the Bible talks about in terms of sex. Some of you guys aren't getting it. So we're just going to go, we're going to make it more uncomfortable. You're going to feel it. It's going to be great. The Bible's pro-sex. It's, it's meant to be fun. It's meant to be enjoyed. It's a beautiful picture. And you see in the Song of Solomon, Perfect example, this man pursuing his wife with intention and he compliments her. He starts with her hair and moves to her eyes and her nose and the rest of her body. 
And then he gets to their, the story in Psalm, Song of Solomon 4, gets to their wedding night. And unlike a bachelor or whatever, it's like you see the door close, you're like, ooh, I wonder what happens in there. The Bible goes into the room and it starts narrating stuff. Let's read it, shall we? Verse 5. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. This is beautiful. Please try to put your mature hat on. I know it's hard. (laughs) Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breeze and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Why is he calling his wife's breast dear? Well, it's because you don't just jump on a, you know, don't jump on a person. You compliment them and slowly with intention approach them. It's so important. That's, be- I mean, that's beautiful. You can't, you can't get that anywhere else. You see this beautiful intention of this man. And then it says, until the day breeze, shadows flee. I will go away to the mountains of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. In case you're wondering what those are, uh, it's, you know, earlier in the book, the female says that she's going to hide myrrh and frankincense in between her breasts. And so when the husband says all night long, I'm going to go to the mountains of myrrh, it's not Peace or Texas or something, right? It's not an actual location. <laughs> See, scripture isn't sexually repressive. It's not. The Lord wants you to enjoy sex. And later in the Bible, Proverbs 5, it says, let, the f- let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight be intoxicated always in her love. So the person who said, do you take the Bible literally? I say, yes, absolutely, because it has some advantages. There's some advantages to taking the Bible literally until your father-in-law front row looks at you. Sorry, Wayne. Um, It's awkward. Let's keep going. Uh, So joking aside, but seriously, joking aside, God painted a beautiful picture, a beautiful picture of a walled garden and, and he made it with reason, for a reason. And that reason is to partly enjoy the fullness of the gift of sex as whole being engagement. Song of Solomon ends, I love this. Eat, friends, and drink. Be drunk with love. He wants you to be drunk with love with your spouse. This is a picture of marital sex, and it's beautiful. But... Just as the stolen painting in the background of the concert lurks, something seeks to rob us of that picture. And we find ourselves in this morning pointing out the reality that Jesus points out, which is the challenge of lust. Verse 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, so Jesus is paddling upstream Right? He's paddling upstream from what's downstream, which is your actions. He says, this is the heart of the matter, saying that upstream from action is adultery of the mind, is images and imagination taking over in a greedy way. He's saying that infidelity actually begins in the eyes and seeps into the heart. And that's what he's getting at. He says, let's talk about the images and imagination that's affecting our hearts. And it's critical that we address the issue of imagery this morning because that's what Jesus is talking about, the lust of the eyes. So here in this text, you can feel, um, as soon as I say that, in this audience, you can feel a palpable sense of shame 
just wash over the crowd. Every time I've ever touched this topic, you feel the shame just weight over us. And because as you read this, it becomes very clear that no one comes out of the sentence not having not committed adultery, which seems awfully harsh. But again, what Jesus is doing is he's starting with what's upstream from action by reiterating and clarifying the original intent of, God, of the commands of God, which is what affects your heart. And what affects the heart through images and narratives that you run through your head is a slope. It's a slope that's made far steeper and more treacherous by the culture in which we live in in America in 2023. Amen. It's a culture of death and theft that's ripping the picture of the garden off the walls. And it's only graded steeper by this commodified culture, commodified sex culture that we're in, which promotes and allows for porno pornography to seep in. When I was 12 years old, a young man put several sexually explicit images in front of my face. And at that point, I was robbed. The beautiful picture was stolen from me as my innocence was torn from the walls. And in a few seconds, in just a few seconds, I saw more flesh than my great-grandfather saw in his entire lifetime. In a few seconds. From there in my life, the spiral just began. It's a weird thing. You feel ashamed, but you feel drawn to it at the same time. It's a terrible repulsion, but curiosity at the same time. And when you're more and more curious, you push the envelope of looking and looking and it circles you back to shame. And then shame drives you into hiding and then right back into the curiosity in which you came. It's a vicious, vicious cycle. What developed for me a few years later was a, a pornography addiction. And I, I really wanted to stop. I mean, I honestly did. I would have given anything to. I remember after engaging with that, I would sit on my floor in a pile of guilt, just wishing, begging God that this would go away, that this would be taken from me. I just, I didn't understand why I did what I hated. And unfortunately, uh, the, the church finger wagging, right? And, you know, what I would coin as purity culture only made me feel more dirty. So I hid more. You know, the church tends to be perceived or is sometimes a shame-based institution, especially when it comes to sexual sins. And so people keep secrets. And you know what secrets do? They empower addiction. And while I do think some of it was really well intentioned, instead of focusing me on the picture of what sex was to be, of how beautiful it was within marriage and how there's freedom and exposure through the cross, the focus was so much on don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex, be a virgin, be a virgin, be a virgin. And that was so crippling for me because who they were talking about was me. And I felt like I was just this dirty thing. And so I had to hide more. 
The gasoline to the engine of running back to the lust of the eyes was shame. It always is. I hated what I did. Romans 7, uh, Paul, the apostle, says something similar, which is kind of assuring for me or was helpful for me. Verse 15, it says, I don't really understand myself. For, what I want to, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I discovered over the years what Paul did when it comes to sin, especially the lust of the eyes. And that is that it's impossible to defeat one's sin nature by willpower alone. Impossible. Ask any psychiatrist. Ask any psychiatrist. When an idea imposes itself upon the mind, this is Arnold, all conscious efforts you make to counteract it are not merely without the desired effect, but will actually go in the opposite direction and intensify it. The result is that the dominant idea in your mind is actually reinforced. See, what lust does is it pits your will against your imagination, and guess what wins every time? Imagination. Imagination wins every time against your will. And you can see how this ultimately drives deeper from your mind and your eyes all the way to your heart. In this culture, the constant stream of sex that you're getting is corrupting your heart first and foremost, but capturing your eyes and thoughts. Because a thought becomes a mindset, and a mindset becomes a habit, and a habit can quickly become a heart posture. Psychology's catching up to Jesus, finally. It's not beyond me that, statistically speaking, in this room, 71% of the men in this room and 20% of the women in this room are, are engaging in, with porn weekly. The, the average age of exposure to other people having sex is 11 years old in America. 11 years old. You can see how this picture is being stolen from you and I starting with our kids. From a very young age, kids aren't even given a chance. There's no chance to see the beauty of the picture within marriage. Some of you in this room weren't even given a chance, like a chance to understand the created order of sex and the beauty behind it. You were just thrown into the middle of a gruesome robbery and your innocence and heart are affected. The word lust here is actually very closely tied to the word greed. It's fantasizing about something that you don't have. It's like saying, when I win the lottery, this is what I'm going to get. It's placing a narrative in your mind, alluding to this. It's a fantasy, which is why Jesus comes in. And what he does here is spectacular. It seems coarse, but it's spectacular. As a good shepherd, Jesus protects our eyes and steers us more towards him. It seems like he's giving us coarse measures, but hear the protection of a gentle shepherd speaking to his sheep in a very direct way. He, he does this by alluding to the future of love. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Okay, so Jesus gets pretty drastic here, and he does so for a good reason. The application of this text is very clear. So we have some knives and tourniquets. Dr. Roten's a hand surgeon. He's going to come up here, and we're just going to start slicing hands off. Is that what Jesus meant? No. 
Hopefully not. He's actually not advocating here for mutilation. No, he's encouraging mortification. Mortification. Killing something in your life. Not necessarily chopping off a body part. He's actually uh, advocating for mortification, putting death to things in your life that are killing you. And he does this so personally. Personal. It's like there should be a church vision about that. He does this so personal, right? He makes this so personal. He says, if you. This is the first fascinating thing, I think, in this text. How personal of a call this is. This is about you and your personal struggles. What's specifically causing you to fall into this trap? What narratives of lust are you writing in your head when you see that man and you think, oh, I wonder what it'd feel like to be in his embrace? What narratives are you writing when you see that female for you specifically? This is why it's, this is why it's about li- listening to and understanding what your habits are to see what you need to cut out. Is it your computer? Then keep it in the car and use it only in public places. Is it a certain place? Right? Don't, don't go there. I refuse to drive down university from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you've never driven down university from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock. I just won't do it during the school year. Uh, another good example is if you go to the HG Breezeway, you know what I'm talking about? Right? Where the, anybody know where HG is? Right? You walk down there, there's this thing called the Core Power Perilous Window Pane. Right? If you see me walking down there, I'm looking the other way. I can't go that way. I have to go around because I know myself. And I see that these are the things I have to stay away from. These are the things I have to cut out of my life. It's a fatal fish tank is really what it is. That's a good alliteration there. If you have a certain coworker that you can't be around, then cut that coworker out of your life. Is it a show? Maybe it's a television show? Right? Oh, I won't be able to be a part of that conversation at work. We'll, we'll cut that out of your life. What's that show with the real estate agents? That do this? Like See, confession in church, right there. <laughs> confession. <laughs> cut it out. Cut it out of your life, is what he's saying. Cut it out of life. It's not worth it. Take drastic measures. Take drastic measures. Because we're talking about heaven and hell. For, for a lot of you, it's your phone. Right? It's your phone. And today, if you want to reclaim the intended order of through Christ and your sexuality, then we bought several flip phones, little brick phones, Nokia brick phones. Has uh, some amazing features. <laughs> FM radio. Whoa. <laughs> And if that's not a great feature, you could throw it at somebody and probably hurt them pretty severely. Uh, we seriously, actually, we actually brought, bought several flip phones. For some of you, that's the drastic measure you take. I had to have one for a while. It was really fun. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you've got to take drastic measures. That's what this text is clearly saying. We're talking about hell, is what he says. But I, what I love even more about this text Uh, is not necessarily his first point, but his uh, his second point, but his first point. And to get there, I have to explain this to you. Josh had had last week had said that that the word he uses for hell here is Gehenna. Gehenna is an actual place that we're going to go to next year. 
and it's a place where all the garbage in the city was thrown and it was set on fire. Uh, it's the highlight of the Israel trip, really. You guys are going to love it. But what happens is they pour this garage in there and then it's a never-ending fire pit. And what the shepherd is doing is, le- is he's leading his sheep away from an unquenchable fire that's all-consuming. What do we need to mortify in our lives to turn us away from the fire pit that's going to consume you? But how he gets there is fascinating in this, this text. Look, what he does first is incredible. He assumes the forgiveness of the initial sin of adultery and lust. I mean, read it. He assumes forgiveness of the initial sin of adultery and lust. But it's its failure to subsequently take sin seriously and, and a lack of focusing on the elimination of it in your life, that's the road that potentially leads to hell. Try to gather that. He assumes forgiveness of adultery and lust in this text, but then says the failure to eliminate it in your life is actually the path that leads potentially to hell. So the next question that's obvious, is this, is this just all about changing your behavior? Not even close. It's not even close. If you walk out of this place, you think, I'm just going to take a couple tips and change my phone and I'm going to be great. No, this is about your heart. It's always been about your heart. When Jesus met the woman at the well who was actively pursuing adultery, did he just give, give her, here, here's Atomic Habits and some Simon Sinek YouTube videos. You'll figure it out. That went over some of your heads really fast. It's just a habits formation book. No, he doesn't give her behavior modification. First, he says, look, I have something that will always satisfy you. I know what you're doing. I know all of what you've done. And I have a water that if you drink of it, you'll never be thirsty. I have an endless supply of satisfaction. And when she took her her sin seriously, took her wrongdoing seriously, he said to her, go and sin no more. And she went away dancing and saying, let me tell you about a guy who knows everything I've done and still loves me. In 2012, I met a beautiful girl. She was wearing a one-piece swimsuit and had the worst taco choco tan I've ever seen in my life. Uh, And as I began to get to know this girl, I fell pretty hard for her. But I had a serious problem. A few months prior to meeting her, I was in the pit of promiscuity. And this girl was too good to be true. The narrative began in my head. You don't even deserve her. I I mean, you're so dirty. Do you you know what you've seen? You know what you've done? There's no way she's going to take you in. No way. This is a waste of your time. You're not good enough. And at the time, things were getting pretty serious, and I needed to talk to her. I needed to tell her about my past, where I was coming from, and into our relationship. And so I drove down to Waco and to meet her. It was the longest hour and a half of my life. My hands were sweaty. My stomach was in my feet. I just knew, I mean, I knew she was going to break up with me. I knew it. So I sat her down on a picnic bench, took a deep breath, and I just laid out my past. And without skipping a beat, 
she said 10 words, 11 words that changed everything. She said, if Jesus doesn't hold these things against you, why would I? And with grace and patience of Christ, she helped me mortify the things in my life that hurt our marriage before I met her. And she walked me out of the pit of addiction and freedom to which I stand in today. But the only way, the only way Claire could say something like that is because she knew a guy. She would say, I'm going to tell you about a man who loves you more than you could possibly imagine and knows everything you've ever done. The only way this works is Claire loves him way more than she loves me. The embrace of her heavenly father is more important than some silly boy. And when you start to realize that we are little manifestations of grace to each other, you might experience the freedom that he offers. I did. The concert painting currently sits as an item with the largest bounty for its return. Its priceless, uh, its priceless value offers a high reward for its return to bring it back to its rightful owner. And the obvious question that I have to ask you this morning is, do you realize what your bounty is? Do you realize what you, the ransom is to bring you back to this picture is? What it is? He who did not spare his own son but gave himself up while you were still in your sin. He considered you so priceless in the midst of your worst sin. And Romans 8.32, he says he didn't spare his son but gave himself up to have you back. See, the, the enemy may have stolen the picture, but the story's not over. And the reception of grace into this area of your life is just the beginning. It's the beginning of healing and hope because everything stolen by sin can be returned by the bounty of grace. Everything. Graham, you don't understand. My wife and I haven't been intimate in 12 years. That thing I did, it's just hurting us over and over again. It's been years. Everything. Everything stolen by sin can be returned by the bounty of grace. You don't understand, Graham. I've had a pornography addiction since I was f since fifth grade. Everything, everything stolen by sin can be returned by the bounty of grace. Graham, what's been robbed from me is just too heavy. I can't. I, there's no way. Everything stolen by sin can be returned by the bounty of grace. And the bounty of grace has a name. And he's here to offer you forgiveness and freedom to enjoy the picture as God intended. Let me pray for you guys. Lord, what you wrote as the picture of what sex is supposed to be is something none of us could ever conjure. You wrote in to this world a gift. 
And when the fall of man happened, the enemy took that gift and twisted it. And some of my friends in this room, if not all of them, have had that taken from them. The enemy has torn the painting off the wall and it seems as if all is lost. God, remind us of this truth that you sent your one and only son as the ransom, the bounty for us to be in relationship with you. It was all about relationship. And because of that, we can enjoy freedom. For my friends in this room who are hopeless, may they leave knowing there's hope. For my friends in this room who need to mortify something, would you show them what that is specifically and would you give them the confidence to do it? And for our church, Lord, I pray that we're a safe place of containment. That no matter what somebody brings to the table, no, no matter how strange it sounds or whatever it is, Lord, may we be a church who, with open arms, expresses what your son did by saying, I'm here and I love you. Convict us to that end. And may we be a bright light in this world, in a very dark place. In Jesus' name, amen.